And those who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we pause, um, as is our custom, because we uh, we remember that this hearing of your word uh, doesn't just happen in our own strength. Um, Our minds are easily distracted. Our hearts sometimes can be slow to hear. But we take comfort in the knowledge that your Holy Spirit, as we have sung, is present with us speaking to us, opening our minds and our hearts. And so we ask you even right now that we might commune with you, that we might hear you and be renewed by you as we look at the word your son speaks to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that in life, we can kind of characterize our approach to the world around us with two different postures. There is this posture to the world. It's the posture of of openness, of welcome, of vulnerability, of love. And then there is this, of guardedness, of, of protectedness, of fear. We see that probably most obviously in little kids because little kids don't know how to fake anything, right? So 
I remember a few weeks ago, uh, he's not here anymore, I went to Children's Church, but Jaden, I remember I was talking with someone after church, and every 30 seconds, it seemed like Jaden was just on a mission to hug. I mean, he would just like, come, tackle my leg, run away, find someone else to hug, I think, tackle my leg again. I mean, he was just arms wide open, he was smiling, his life was just available for everyone to enjoy with him. It was that wide open posture. Now, we can also think of times where we have seen little children have a very different response. Maybe their toy has been taken away, or maybe they've just been woken up, and they're like this. And, and you try to engage them, and maybe they kind of like turn their shoulder from you because they're shy or something like that. They are protecting their teddy bear or their security blanket. They are guarded. Now, when we get older, we're much better at faking. And, and not showing really what's going on inside of us. But I still think we have those two postures consi- consistently a part of the way that we live. Sometimes we just feel wide open to the world, maybe we're at home, we're comfortable, and we just feel love and welcome. But, but that's not probably our primary way of being, is it? Because over time we realize this opens us up to hurt and life does hurt. And so more and more we find ourselves guarded. We're guarded by by putting up kind of a mask, being nice to people but not ever letting people get too close. Or we're guarded by by sometimes being sarcastic because that can protect us. Or, Or we're guarded just by being emotionally distant But because we know that we are in danger of getting hurt, we oftentimes relate to the world like this, don't we? So this morning, I want to encourage us, to challenge us, to move away from that tendency. I want to encourage us to see that our calling, our identity as followers of Jesus is to be people who are like this, to the world around us. Now, if you are, as you've already heard, um, we're, we're kind of turning a corner. It's kind of part two of a two-part series. All of fall, we have been focusing on the story of God's mission, of what God has been doing in the world from the time he made the world to the time that Jesus came. It was the culmination of all that he was doing. And now we're, we're kind of changing course and kind of thinking of part two. Okay, if that's God's story, what is our story? How do we fit into what God is doing? And looking back, I hope that one of the things that you saw clearly was that the story of God's mission is a love story. I didn't use that language, and I kind of wish I had more, but hopefully you saw this. So from the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Was it because he was bored or lonely? No, God was supremely joyful as a Trinitarian God. He did it because he wanted to give. He did it out of love. Well, we broke everything, and then God comes to Abraham and promises, and he comes to Moses and makes promises, and he comes to David and he makes promises, and he binds himself to an ironclad commitment that he is going to rescue his people and bring them back to the perfection that they originally enjoyed. Why? Did he just want to impress these people? No, he did this 
Because even though we failed, he loved. As we chart the story of Israel and we see failure after failure after failure and God rescuing after rescuing after rescuing, even to the point where they die through exile and God brings them back to life, why is he doing this again? He is doing this because he is a God who loves faithfully even when his people are faithless. Throughout the story of God's word, we see God not being self-protective. Throughout it, his posture to the world is this. It's a posture of openness and welcome and love. I mean, it literally is this. If we go to where the story climaxes as Jesus, rather than protecting himself, where he could at any point stop the process, he goes to the cross and has his arms spread wide open because of love. That's, that's the story of God. It is a love story where he spreads his arms wide in welcome, calling us to turn from our false lovers and enter his loving embrace. And our story, the mission that we are given, is as we come to experience this love of God, to be so changed by it, that we join him, that we share in this arms wide open posture to the world. Our mission is to extend Christ's life-changing love in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces. Our mission is a mission, quite simply, of love. And that's my hope more than anything else in the next seven weeks, that that's what we see, that that's what we find ourselves navigating, if we haven't before, our lives by, that our calling is to love. And we see that in our passage this morning. In fact, I want us to just, if you have your bulletins open, great. If not, have them open because we're going to be looking through the different parts. And I want you to jump to the very last sentence perhaps the most striking sentence in the passage of what Jesus said. This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. And he calls us, he says, be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. Now, when you hear that, what do you think of? My guess is when we think of perfection, we think of of not making mistakes, of following the rules right, of being able to check off the boxes. And let me say, that's not really what this idea of perfection is about. The Greek word here is not about just faultlessness on its own right. It's a word that literally speaks of maturity, of completeness, of fully being what we were meant to be. And so when it speaks of God being perfect, it's speaking of God being completely and utterly who he should be. There is nothing about God that needs to change, no way that he needs to grow or mature. He is fully and completely God. And so when Jesus is saying this here, he's saying, in the way that your father is complete and mature in every way, so it is your calling to grow into that completeness so that you become fully the person you were created to be. And you should not rest until you get there. That's what Jesus is saying. 
But we might ask, what is he envisioning when he's saying that our calling is to be this fully mature, whole, complete person? What is he thinking of? And if you look at the context, it's clear. He's, what is he talking about in the paragraph that leads up to this final statement? He's, he's not talking about making sure we do all the rules right. He's not talking about us having a comprehensive understanding of theology. Now, don't get me wrong, both of those, obedience and knowing God, are incredibly important. But when he is speaking of this perfection, of this maturity, what is he talking about? We see verse 44, love. Love your enemies, he says. How does God, our Father, demonstrate his absolute perfection and completeness? He shows his love even to those who despise him. He blesses everyone. He shows the sunshine. He gives rain, the blessings of the beauty of this world. He spreads to everyone, even those who are completely against him. That's the kind of God he is. His arms are wide open to everyone, and that's what we are supposed to emulate. In the same way your father is like that, so also you should love even those people who are most annoying, most frustrating, most after you. Love even your enemies. When you do that, you are mature. And notice, he's not just saying love only your enemies. Love even your enemies. That is, you should be so characterized by love It should be so much a part of your life that even those people who are the most difficult to love are the people that you love. Our Father opens wide his arms to the world, and Jesus says, and that's how you and I are called to be. When we are most the people that we are created to be, that's how we will be. That's what Jesus is doing in you right now if you are a follower of Christ. He is making you more and more someone who opens wide his arms even to his or her enemies. That is our mission, to love the world. Now, my guess is, even as threatening as that idea is, and let's be honest, if we really are thinking about this idea of of opening ourselves up in love to even our enemies, that is costly, that is scary. But my guess is, even as scary as that might be, I don't really need to convince you that that is the way that we were meant to be. Because you and I know just how beautiful that kind of love actually is. When I was in college, I took a class, a theater, entered a theater class. Um, and the teacher, Jim Young, was kind of an eccentric, artsy guy. I remember whenever we would do an assignment, he would always pay us in fruit. Because he said every artist should always get paid. But But that's not what people know and remember about Jim. What people remembered about Jim was that he is the softest, most gentle-hearted guy they had ever met, and he loved them. I mean, it was just the most amazing thing. You had no, like, you know how a lot of times with people there's like this probationary period where they're getting to know you before they decide what you think of you. There wasn't that with Jim. The moment you met him, you already felt like he was on your side, and he was. And you could just see him when you're like walking in the campus, and when he saw you, his, his face would light up in delight because he was just someone who overflowed with love. And to know him was to want to be like him because it was beautiful. 
And my guess is many of us know someone like that in our lives, a family member or a friend who, who just simply is loving, is accepting, is on your side, even at cost to him or herself. And when we see that, there is something deep within us to say, that is right. That is what I wish I could be. See, we know that's what we were designed for, to be people with arms spread wide open, even when it's at cost to ourselves. We are created by God to love. Now, in these verses that we have just read, not only does Jesus lay that out as as what our, our mature self will be, what our mission is, he also gives us some clarity as to what that looks like. And so in our remaining time, I want us to consider three aspects to what this self-giving, arms-wide-open love is to be as followers of Christ. And the first one is really just to restate what we have already been seeing, and that is we are called to love in such a way that even when people are against us, we are not against them. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, love your enemies. When people are opposed to you, you do not respond in kind, but you respond in love. My guess is you have people that you know who disagree with you about everything, about politics, about morality, about schooling, about how wise living looks like. You are not against them. Maybe there are leaders who are trying to take away religious liberty. Maybe there are even people who are even more threatening than that. Certainly in other countries where persecution is more obvious, that's the case. We are not against them. Speaking more personally, inevitably there are people who sometimes have hurt you, maybe close family members or friends who have betrayed you. You are not against them. In fact, Jesus says more than that. It's not just that you're not against them. It's that our calling as as followers of Christ is to love, to love our enemies. And you know that Jesus knows exactly what he is talking about. Because he himself, as he is being crucified, prays for the very people crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them. And he calls us to the same. Let me ask you, if someone were to look at your Facebook feed, would they be able to see that you are someone who loves your enemies, that you love those who disagree with you? Or in the way you speak of others? Or in the way you pray for others? We are called to love even our enemies. We are not against those who are against us. The second instruction that Jesus has for us, and actually the second and third both are are related to these metaphors of salt and light. In, In verse 13, Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. Now, if you look at commentaries, they'll kind of debate, you know, because salt in that time was both the preservative and it also provided flavor. And they'll try to figure out which one was Jesus thinking of. But the good news is it doesn't really matter. Because the important point is that salt was good. 
It was good for the people that had it. It was a necessary part of society. And Jesus is saying, you, you are salt. That means you are good. You are a blessing to the world. And notice this is not a command, become salt. This is a statement, you already are the salt of the earth. By you being my disciples, because that's who he's speaking of. He's speaking of his disciples, those who follow him. That makes you salt. That makes you a blessing to the world around you. Now, if you're salt, what is the way that you love the world? You love the world by being salty. It's, it's, it's that simple. You just, by being who you are is the way you are a blessing, because what the world most needs from salt is for it to be salty. And of course, that means the worst thing to do is to lose that very thing that gives you or gives the world its benefit by losing your saltiness. And so Jesus says, if salt somehow loses its saltiness, what good it is? You just throw it away. There's nothing good about salt that has lost its saltiness. And so here we come to the second principle of how we are to love the world with our arms wide open. That is, we love the world by being distinctly Christ-like, by being salty. And this is, maybe seems obvious, but it's actually not. And it's, and it's important for us to know. Because I think in the last 50 years, as the church has sought to know how to love a changing society, it has strived almost more than anything else for relevance. And here is the message that it's basically been saying. Try Christianity. Try our church, and it won't feel that weird. You know, we'll, we'll make the architecture more like malls. You can make sure you can get a latte by Starbucks right before you enter. And when you sit down, it can be anonymous because you'll just be like an audience and it'll be more like a performance. And in fact, you won't even have to live that differently. You can still have your suburban life of security and comfort. The only difference will be that you now have Jesus. But here's the thing. If I'm in that situation and I hear that message that it doesn't make any difference except you have Jesus, then I start wondering, and I think this is exactly what people are wondering, why bother? If there's nothing different about this, then what use is it? And the answer is none. It has lost its saltiness and it's worthless. Here's how you and I love the world by letting Jesus make us as strange as he is. The world doesn't need us to be identical to it. The world needs us to be strange, to be strange in the way that we care more about the outsider and the foreigner than our own comfort and security. The world needs us to be strange in living significantly below the life standard of our neighbors because we desire to give our wealth away. That's strange. The world needs us to be strange in prioritizing above anything else the glory of God and his mission and his worship and planning our calendars around that priority. Because that's what it means to be salty. That's what it means to be Christ-like and that's what the world needs. Why? Because the world needs Jesus. And we only are able to fulfill our calling of extending the life-giving love of Jesus as we grow more and more like him. 
We love the world by being distinctly Christ-like. That's the second thing that Jesus tells us. And then Jesus tells us that you and I are the light of the world. And once again, like salt, light is a blessing, especially in a day where there was no electricity. Light was needed because dark was very dark. So light was needed for safety, and light was needed for people to be able to find the way. And Jesus says, that's what you are. You are light. In the world of darkness, you provide safety. You offer people a way as they are stumbling around in darkness. And notice once again, Jesus is not commanding, become the light. He is saying, you are Right now here, this group of people, as we are gathered, we are a bunch of light, though we don't see it. Now let me ask a similar question to the one I asked before. If you are light, what is the way that you love the world around you? And the answer is by being visible. You know, if light is hidden, it doesn't do any good. And Jesus says that. Why in the world would you hide a light under a basket? No, you put it in the most public place that you can so that it can cast light. And what Jesus is saying is that if we want to love the world, and here's this third principle, for us to love the world well, arms wide open, we need to be present in it. Putting it differently, we need to both be involved and we need to be inviting. We need to both go and care And we need to be able to say to people, come and see, because we're light. We need to be involved. We need to go and care. You know, one of the easiest things for us to do is to want to be people who are, to want to be with people who are like us. And so if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, we will find over time that the only people we have any meaningful contact with is other Christians who are just like us. And whether we realize it or not, when that is true, this is how we are being towards the rest of the world. God has placed in each of your paths people who do not yet know Christ. Some of you have neighbors that you have lived alongside for years. People in your workplace. Let me ask you, how often do you just ask them how they're doing and actually care about the answer and spend time listening to it. You ever invited them into your home or out for dinner? Do you pray for them? You know, the great philosopher Linus from Peanuts once said, I love mankind. It's people that I can't stand. And If we're honest, we understand that. Here's here's the truth behind this. There is no possible way that you can love the world if you don't love the individuals that God has put in your path. You can't be light if you remove yourself. You know, one of the things that Stu said that I thought was totally right is that you can't get stuck. You just, even if you're not sure what the right step is, you need to just get started. Let me ask you, what would be a step that you could take as you think of your neighbors or people in your workplace for you to be involved, to go and to care, and to live out your reality as light? 
And it's not just about being involved, going and caring. I think also to be light means that we are called to invite, to come and see, or to say, come and see. Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, if you are miles away from the city of Chicago, at nighttime, the, light, the, the sky is still much lighter because when a city with lots of lights, when you have all these lights together, it casts light from, to far off. And Jesus is saying there's something about the community of God that is light-bringing. And that means it should be our desire to draw people in so that they can see what a Christian community looks like, so they can join in with our practices. Your calling is to be praying and longing to invite people in on Sunday mornings or other times in our community to come and to see. Because you and I are light. And to love with arms wide open means we are involved in people's lives and we are inviting them to join us. Now, I wonder if you have felt a tension in this. You and I are salt, which means we're called to be weird. We're light, which means we are called to be involved in people's lives. And Jesus says that's true even with our enemies. And so what that tells us if we read between the lines is that what Jesus is calling us to is a knowledge that on one hand we are what the world needs. Not us particularly, but Jesus. And we're the ones who bring Jesus. We have what the world needs. And yet what we have oftentimes is not what the world wants. I mean, Jesus himself says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We should be absolutely honest here. When Jesus is calling us to be salt and life and love our enemies, Jesus is calling us to suffer. There is no way for us in this world to love well with arms wide open and to avoid suffering. That's why we do this, right? Even though we know this is what's beautiful, this is where we want to be, we know we are going to get hurt and so we do this. And we know that's where things will go because that's where our Savior went. He opened his arm wide and suffered. And Jesus is is realistic here. He doesn't say, don't worry, if you trust in me, it's not going to happen. No. You will suffer. The consolation is not that you won't, but that you're not going to suffer alone. That as we become the people we were created to be, as we love, Jesus will be there with us. There is a sense that when we are suffering for loving, Jesus draws nearer to us than almost any other time to strengthen us and to nourish us. And also you're not alone in that we are in this together. Part of our calling is to help each other to continue to give ourselves in sacrificial, suffering love and to help each other as we're going through the difficulty of it. Because... When we love the world 
as Christ has loved us. When we are willing to suffer even for our enemies, there is a power to this that is unlike anything else the world sees. There's a power to change lives. Probably some of you are familiar with the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot, and he and three other people went to Ecuador to this one tribe, the Huarani people, who were known for their brutality, and they, they sought to reach them so they could share the love of Christ with them. And at first, the connection seemed like it was going well, but it went south quickly. And all four of them were found washed ashore, spears in their side, dead. It was covered in Life magazine. It was a big deal in the 50s. Well, about two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the one who died, and Rachel Saint, sister of another one of the missionaries who had died, went to live with the Hurani people, to live among the very people who had killed their husband and brother. And over time with these people, almost all of the tribe came to believe in the gospel and be saved. Because they had never experienced this sacrificial, self-giving, arms-wide-open love before. Now, I tell you this story not to try to encourage all of us to go to some dangerous parts of the world to tell people about Jesus, but because our calling is to show this dangerous love to this part of the world. To open arms are wide, knowing that at times we will be ridiculed, that at times we will be rejected, and it is going to hurt. But it is the love that God has shown us. And it is a love that is beautiful and powerful. And it is our joy and privilege to join in with God in showing it to the world around us. I'd like us just to take a minute in reflection. I hope that as you've been hearing this, you have been thinking about how God is calling you to take steps. And and at least for me, as I've been challenged by this, I think one of the first steps, if not the first step, is just to spend time in prayer and to acknowledge to God where we have been like this, where in fear we have been self-protective, where we have not loved our enemies, or even people who are not our enemies but are hard to love and to spend time confessing to God about how we are not yet what we are called to be and allow God to start doing the work in us to turn us outward and make us into the people he has created us to be. So I invite you please to to spend some time with me in silent confession, opening ourselves up to Christ's transforming love and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Lord God, the, the words that Jesus says here in these verses are scary to us. We, we don't want to suffer. And that's why it is so oftentimes hard for us truly to love others. And yet they're life-giving because they are calling us to the way that we were made to be. And so we say, Father, please forgive us for how we are self-protective and self-centered. Forgive us for when we have not been loving our enemies because that is often how we have been. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would give us the courage of Christ Jesus, would give us the love of Christ, that we might be a city set on a hill, that our love would change people, even as you change us through your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, hear these words from 1 Peter. Brothers and sisters, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to God.